The sandstorm gave me some time to think, but I'm still not sure I've got the answers to my question. Some of these questions may continue for a long time. Glad a notebook and pen were uncovered during the sandstorm, though. I can now keep track of all those questions I have, I guess. Uh, today, today I'm, I'm going to make it through Chapter 2, though. I can't dwell on one question for too long. Maybe the answer's hidden in the books, and I'll have missed it because I stagnated on the question. Maybe. Though some of these might just be timeless, and I'll never know. And then I'll never have extra questions that might be answered faster than the others. Need a checklist. Chapter 2 Therefore, the Lord hath made, the Lord <laughs> hath made good his word, which he pronounced against us and against our judges that judged Israel, and against our kings and against our princes, and against the men of Israel and Judah, to bring upon us great plagues, such as never happened under the whole heaven, as it came to pass in Jerusalem, according to the things that were written in the law of Moses, that a man should eat the flesh of his own son, and the flesh of his own daughter. Moreover, he hath delivered them to be in the subjugation to all the kingdoms that are around, us, around about us, to be as a reproach and desolation among all the people round about, where the Lord hath scattered them. Thus we were cast down, and it not exalted, because we have sinned against the Lord our God, and have not been obedient unto his voice. God created a lengthy contract in Leviticus with the Israelites. Lengthy, like the whole book is basically a contract. So in chapter 26, 14 through 16, God tells Israel the horrors they can expect if they go against him. Amongst these horrors is that God will force them into a situation where they will eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. 26.9 Leviticus Towards the end of the chapter, God tells them that the only reason they will not be eradicated from the face of the earth is because he made a promise to Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. This is echoed again in Deuteronomy 28.53 and you shall eat the offspring of your own stomach, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom Adonai, your God, has given you, in the siege and the distress of which your enemies will oppress you. And Jeremiah, who is the Baruch is his scribe, warns Israel that they are about to be brought under this curse in Jeremiah 19.9. Okay, so they're acknowledging this in Baruch. In Jeremiah 19.9 says, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and distress inflicted on them by their enemies who seek their lives. And Ezekiel also issues this, this statement. This curse will be upon them in Ezekiel 5.9. This is... It may seem strange to think that Israel would have been laid so low as to become cannibals, but the Bible does confirm at least one case of it in 2 Kings 6.24-3. 30. Sorry. Um, this, of course, is during Elisha's ministry and not at the time of Jeremiah, telling us that the book of Baruch's account is not the first time this curse was brought upon Israel. Lamentations echoes Baruch in telling 
in the telling of what happened due to the siege of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem, sorry, not Israel. Lamentations 4.10. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And if you're up for a read, I've posted an article below which takes a more in-depth look at the curse and even links it to the practice to, to a practice in Near East punishments. Why this is... I, it's really hard for me to think about how God could possibly put a curse this bad on people. Kind of goes back to my question. Accepting the will of God and all that stuff. Just seems... Hmm. It's not like it hasn't happened. It has. And it's echoed here several times that this curse would be brought upon them. I'll write that down. To the Lord our God apprehend, uh, appertaineth righteousness, but unto us and to our fathers open shame, as appeareth this day. For all these plagues are come upon us, which the Lord hath pronounced against us. Yet have we not prayed before the Lord that we might turn every one of them from the imaginations of his wicked heart? Wherefore the Lord watched over us for evil, and the Lord hath brought it upon us. For the Lord is righteous in all his works, which he hath commanded us. Yet we have not hearkened unto his voice to walk in the commandments of the Lord that he hath set before us. Let thy wrath turn from us, for we are but a few left among the heathen, where thou hast scattered us. So, when I was in basic training, mass punishment was par for the course. I sometimes wonder if that idea came from some general reading of the Bible and thinking, God's model of mass punishment seems like it worked. Maybe we can replicate it for our training. I mean, okay, to be fair, it does work in basic training. It's a good visual aid for the impact that one person has on the capability of the rest of the team. With a national prayer like the one that we're seeing here in Baruch, it stands as an eye-opener for the people to see how their own actions impact the rest of the whole. I know quite a few people, non-Christians, that look at God with disgust because he doesn't have have to choose to do these things, but he does it anyway, and I still don't understand it. Admittedly, God's version of mass punishment upsets me. I, I don't rejoice in it at all, but I don't ignore it either, like so many Christians I've, I've met have. Nor do I believe that the way we turn to people, uh, we the way we turn people to God is to tell them of the unspeakable evils. He's willing to cast down upon us for our depravity. But, I mean, if you're only reading half the story, half the book, and realistically, the New Testament is not really half the book, but if you're reading the New Testament and that's all you see, and that's all you believe is God, you're missing out on how much the Old Testament informed Christ's ministry. Um gonna have to come to accept God's mass punishment strategy as something very similar to the way the military uses it. Though the scale just seems strange. Maybe it's because it was a different time. 
when I think of without God, the world has no reason to be morally upstanding, I don't think of it the same way that most Christians I know think of, but more in the same thought process of an American standing on the side of the Second Amendment. Sometimes people use it for evil, and I know that God uses evil. Job said so. At least he acknowledges it. And we see it here. This, this, is, this is evil. Is God really all good? He has to employ evil in order to get us to do what we're supposed to. But I mean, that doesn't really happen anymore these days. I'm not Jewish. I didn't sign that contract. Not the one that had the curse on it. And to condemn everybody, I, hmm. So, an atheist, I guess, would point out to you that if you need God to be morally upright, then you aren't morally upright. I don't actually disagree with that. But what are the moral values you need to hold? The first commandment Christ tells us is that we should love God completely because God outlines how to best follow the second of Christ's commandments to love your neighbor. While you can choose to follow those same morals without loving God and being morally right, upright, not to be confused with spiritually upright, which is founded upon the first commandment to love God in conjunction with the second, to love your neighbor, and those are Christ's commandments, and all the Ten Commandments fall under them in some way. You contribute to the trap that brings immorality into the world, or another way to put it, if a bad apple is not removed in a timely manner, it can contaminate the rest. I guess that's the crux of God's mass punishment strategy. He's in a completely different league of his own. In order to bring his people back into line, the only real option available to him is to take extreme measures, or give up and leave us to our own devices. We don't have to to like it, I guess. That's something I think is very important to know. We don't have to like it. Moses didn't. And because he loved both God and his people, he, he fought against God for them more than once. But I do have to accept that these things are within God's nature. All I can do is pray for God to take away such evils from amongst us, even though, even if he won't hear me out on it. I'm not a prophet. Maybe I should try anyway, though, just as this book seems to attempt to, and Moses tried to. Okay, I'm going to skip the next few verses, as they are more of the same, we messed up, please turn back to us. Most of the chapter is, but there are some interesting points along the way. I've actually written a great deal more than I expected um, for this chapter, so I'm just going to keep going how do you I'm just gonna keep going yeah uh, I don't know how do you cope with the things you believe are absolutely abhorrent in the Old Testament hmm if I think about it Joshua did say in 2415 and if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land which you in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
God doesn't want you to believe he is the evil one. But it's clear that God also doesn't want us to be ignorant of his nature. Joshua continues in verses uh, 19 through 20. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Hmm. And then Christ, Christ on the cross, though, overturned that. Because now we can use Christ as a way of asking for forgiveness and hopefully receiving it. I want to continue through this chapter at least. I guess I'll write down these questions. How do I really reconcile the decisions of God I find abhorrent? I'm trying to work through it. Chapter 2, 17. Open thine eyes and behold for the dead that are in the graves, whose souls are taken from their bodies, will give unto the Lord neither praise nor righteousness. This verse has some interest to me. It's reminiscent of uh, Ecclesiastes 9.5. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. But something strikes me as odd in a story written about three times in the New Testament. In the Gospels, there was a, we see a scene where Christ talks to Moses, who did in fact die. Unlike Elijah, who is also in the same scene on the mountain, Moses wasn't taken up into heaven. He, he was actually, he actually died. It says he died in the Old Testament. Is it possible that it wasn't until the second temple that the disposition of our soul in the afterlife didn't, uh, just didn't get attention? And therefore it may have been a widespread belief that once dead you were always dead? which was why it was so significant that Enoch and Elijah were taken into heaven alive, just as the risen Christ was taken into heaven alive. But there's kind of a wrench in this theory. Uh, King Saul approaches a witch for the explicit purpose of being able to talk with Samuel, which leads me to a strong argument that perhaps there was a belief during the first temple of what happens to your soul after you died. Maybe. I don't really have an answer, but for now I wonder if this verse assumes a belief that these souls are specifically those which God has deemed wicked and decided to destroy for their iniquities rather than allow for uh, allow an, a chance for redemption. The concept of hell, of hell, at least in my limited understanding as a writing of this uh, of this whole entry, didn't really surface until the Second Temple. But that's a topic I'll explore later. 2.18 But the soul has that is greatly vexed, which goeth stooping and feeble, and the eyes that fail, and the hungry soul will give thee praise and righteousness, O Lord. Therefore we do not make our humble supplication before thee. O Lord, our God, for the righteousness of our fathers and of our kings, for thou hast sent out thy wrath and indignation upon us, as thou hast spoken by thy servants, the prophets, saying, mm. 
So this sentiment is echoed in Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. If Baruch had been included in the Old in the Protestant Old Testament, I would think this would make the case by itself that prayer for the dead is useless. What is of interest, however, is that the Catholic Church, which does include Baruch, practices prayer for the dead on the basis of belief in purgatory, which I have yet to find any real evidence for. Maybe it's one of the other apocryphal books. I don't know. Should probably research that, but just not today. What makes these verses so invaluable to us today, however, isn't really that they tell us praying for the dead is a moot point, but that they are taking responsibility for their actions and their actions of the whole. This is taking responsibility, this, this is taking responsibility continues throughout the rest of the chapter with additional acknowledgments of what God asked them in order to be restored. At the end, this portion of the prayer concludes with the promise God gives them if they turn back to him. So that starts up at uh, 2.34. And I will bring them again into the land which I promised with an oath unto their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they shall be lords of it, and I will increase them, and they, will, they shall not be diminished. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them to their God. And they shall be my people, and I will no more drive my people of Israel out of the land that I have given them. God gave an entire people a promise. But he didn't give every individual an individual promise in the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, we only have one real promise. That is, if we walk in God's ways, love him, and love our neighbor, we can go to heaven. That's what it really means to have uh, faith and, and trust in Christ. It's not just about knowing that Christ died on the cross for your sins. It, it's about understanding what that sacrifice tells you to do in order to fully demonstrate you believe. If you're not leading your life in the way God asks you to, it's not belief. It's not trust. That's really just book smarts. What I need to take responsibility for concerning my own contribution to the derailment of righteousness. I don't, I don't know. Am I just cultivating book smarts by exploring this? Am I really understanding what I'm reading, Father? I need rest. I can think about this later. I wish I had the answers. I... I wish I had the answers. A prophet. I admit, there's a bit of jealousy I have of the errors with true prophets. The heat is, is overwhelming. I, I need rest. I just need rest.